Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Welcome back to the Educational Renaissance Podcast. I'm in the studio here with Jason Barney and Colby Atchison. I'm Patrick Egan. We're excited to be talking with you today about narration. Uh, narration has so many different facets to it, maybe a new concept to you or an old concept. Some of the ground we hope to cover today will either introduce you to narration or hopefully raise your game. So, uh, Jason, we begin with you. Uh, you've written an ebook about narration. Uh, soon to be publishing a full-on book on narration. Maybe you could give us the 30,000-foot view of what narration is. Yeah, I'd love to, Patrick. I think, you know, narration is something that I'm very passionate about. I think it's a really important pedagogical practice, a practice in the classroom that makes a huge difference for students' learning on a regular basis. The way I think of it, narration is almost like the teaching act itself because you have some content as a teacher. You want your students to learn in some way, shape, or form. The first step of narration is exposing them to that content. And it could be content of a variety of types. It could be a passage of a great work of literature. It could be a demonstration of a mathematical problem or a sequence for solving something. It could be uh, a painting that we're exposing students to. So that first step of narration is the exposure to students of rich quality content. And that then is followed up by the narration itself, which is when we ask the students to take that content that they've just been exposed to and retell it, recite it, narrate it, put it into their own words and express it. And what's actually going on there as students do that is they, their brains have the opportunity as they are retelling it and imitating the content that they were exposed to, their brains are assimilating it. They're taking it in and making it a part of themselves because just passively receiving something doesn't make it a part of you. It's actually when you tell something that you really come to know it, that it crystallizes in your memory. So that's what I view narration as. Big picture, it's, um, it's like the act of learning itself. You have to have some content, and then the student's mind has to interact with that content and retell it. And those are the two steps to narration. So, Colby, maybe you could tell back what... Mr. Barney is wow, putting me on the spot here, Patrick. I was, I was dialed in, you know. What I heard Jason say there was that narration begins with exposure to rich content. And that content, uh, while well, at least in the Charlotte Mason method, is often a book or a painting, um, it can be a wide variety of different types of content. Narration is key because it allows the student to take in and make the knowledge their own, to assimilate the knowledge for themselves. I mean, in some ways it sounds really simple, really intuitive, 
you you read, you look at the artwork, you tell it back, you narrate what it is. But my my hunch is that for teachers where this is new, uh, it may be helpful to think through, well, how how does this work? What does it look like to incorporate narration as a teacher into your classroom? So what are some of the steps that you would guide a teacher through to really fully incorporate this into the classroom? Yeah, I mean, I think it starts with Charlotte Mason's idea that that the students need to do the work of learning themselves. And I think that's a real shift for most of us in modern education. Um, We're inclined to think mostly in terms of what the teacher is doing in the classroom, of how the teacher is giving the content to the students. If you just think of the standard um, modern school lecture model, often what we have is the teacher at front delivering the content to the students who potentially take notes on it or in some way record it, but then are only tested on that content later after they've had a chance to study it up and cram it for the test. And so often the test of that learning or that knowledge only comes much later and students don't have uh, much interaction with the content immediately after they were exposed to it. And so this kind of shifts things around and puts the work of learning on students. And of course, we still expose them to content, but it's not necessarily coming straight from the teacher's mouth. It may be just the text in front of us that we are looking at, that we are reading aloud together, and the students know immediately that they're going to be accountable for that. There isn't that long delay like we often have in modern educational settings where you're exposed to the content, but you're not really accountable for knowing it until a month later at a big summative test. I think there's recent evidence that shows that having that test right there at the moment of uh, just being exposed to the content helps to stop the process of forgetting that naturally occurs if you don't seal it in right away. So I think that's a big shift for a lot of teachers. Um, It's not necessarily how we initially think about the work of learning in the classroom on a day-to-day basis. Again, teachers are inclined to focus on how they're preparing their notes, how exactly they're formatting the material or thinking through it, the PowerPoint slides they're going to use, and all of that. Are they saying it just right? Instead, I think narration as a practice shifts the focus onto the student as learner having to attend closely and tell back. And again, this all comes in many ways from Charlotte Mason and how she talked about the practice of narration. Um, But I, I don't think it started with her. I think she crystallized a set of steps for how to do narration and, and how to make it a core practice within classrooms so that students really are held accountable to doing the work of learning, but I think it goes back further as well. As I think about what Charlotte Mason says about narration is that it's, it's not a, an unnatural thing for the child to do. They want to tell stories. They want to share what they've experienced in life. And so when you think about a young child coming in, wanting to tell mommy, 
about this experience that they had outside. I just climbed a tree, let me tell you all about it in its detail and its sequence and all of that. Uh, Charlotte Mason seems to be onto something very natural in the child that as they experience anything in life, a picture, a storybook, and then even up through the grades, you know, with our high school students learning some pretty deep and rich philosophy, you're connecting that natural inclination to just tell back these things that I'm experiencing. I've even used this with my master's students, and it's pretty exciting to see them pull out of a text, you know, and say back what the text has said, and they're surprised that they're able to do it. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I, the other day, just the other day, was training a new teacher in narration. And, and this particular teacher had just uh, graduated from a liberal arts college in education, but wasn't exposed to this practice of narration. So, you know, I asked this teacher, so how were you trained to assess your students' comprehension of the text they had read minutes before? And the response was, was something that we're all probably used to. It was, well, after we do the reading, I will ask a particular set of comprehension questions. And those questions will just cover that sort of level one Bloom's taxonomy. Did my students understand the text? You know, what did the character say when such and such event happened? Or did the event happen before or after the other event and, and why and things like that? And what struck me about that response was how narration, in a sense, covers all of that, but in a synthetic way. So rather than asking these like particular targeted questions about what the student understood about the text, it gives the student the full opportunity to dive right in and from start to finish, tell back what they read. And I just find that really inspiring. Yeah, and to build off of that, I think that sort of synthetic aspect is, is a contrast to the kind of analytical comprehension questions that we tend to ask nowadays that aren't long form. I think as modern education educators, we're often afraid of asking students to give extended discourse on any topic that they would know. Instead, we want to do these rapid fire comprehension questions that just pick apart the content in some particular way when it's actually so much more natural for students to tell in the connected format in which they received the content, in which they were exposed to it. And I think that connects to the fact that stories are so primary for us. You know, Patrick, as you were talking about before, what happens naturally for a young you know, child as they've experienced something, they want to tell it. You know, Charlotte Mason has this great passage in Home Education where she introduces the idea of narration and the practice. And uh, she talks about a little Bobby seeing this fight between two dogs in the street and how Bobby comes home bursting with a heroic narrative of this epic battle, telling all the details in graphic uh, and fit ways. You know, he's really into it. He, he loves the opportunity to tell. So I think this is one of the big reasons for narration. In Charlotte Mason's mind, it's that children narrate by nature. It's built into them. As people made in the image of God, we want to tell stories. We love narratives. It's not something foreign to us. 
in a way, it's more the analytical, multiple choice dissection sorts of questions that uh, are foreign to us and that we need to be need to learn how to do. And that's an important step later on. But I think the more fundamental narration, telling a story, where our, our God is a storytelling God. And as human beings, we love stories and we tell stories at a deeply primal way. And I think that's so important. We, we've all been reading Jordan Peterson. And, and I think one of the ideas he, he draws from somebody like Carl Jung is that we are storytelling people. That's how we process the world, our interaction with reality. It's interesting to give students those tools immediately. Uh, so as we're dealing with narrative or poetry or fable or whatever it is that they're telling it back and just giving them these tools immediately to start processing their world. It's an exciting thing to be able to give uh, children. So I'm a teacher. I'm thinking, well, I've got to give up lecturing some time and energy to move away from monodirectional teaching to this more dialogical approach where I'm giving time, space to students to narrate. Risky, it sounds like, for a teacher who may be trying to make that shift, right? Um, so what are some of the things I need to be looking out for as a student is narrating? How do I deal with maybe errors that come up in their narration? Or how do I know when enough narration is enough? What if I have a large class? Uh, what are some of the things that I can be aware of as a teacher to be doing narration well? That's a great question because it is such a big shift. And I think for uh, many teachers that we know or, or I know who have started practicing narration in the classroom, one of the questions that naturally comes up is, what am I actually supposed to be doing here? Uh, is this it? I just put content in front of students and have them do all the work of narrating? Where does my job come in? And I think there are a lot of things for the teacher to do. I think if you are new to narration and you're wanting to implement it in your classroom, there are a few key first steps that you'll want to go through. And one of those is a rollout speech in which you explain to students and cast vision for the new practice of narration. And I think this is just a sort of a best practice for starting any new procedure or practice in your classroom. You want to give students the opportunity to buy in. So I view teachers as the leaders in their classroom and good leadership would suggest that if you can get them on board and understanding the why and how of what you're doing, then you're going to avoid problems later on. So you, I could imagine a student just immediately starting narration without a full kind of preface or explanation to the students of the practice. And there being some challenges and maybe students go with it for a while, but in a couple weeks, students are thinking to themselves and potentially voicing out loud, why are we doing this? I wish we could go back to the old way because narration is hard. So it's understandable that students would have that reaction. Um, it makes me think of the example of say a coach who was shifting around how 
he does practice for his soccer team and and changes the the changes up on them what sort of drill they're going to do regularly. If he didn't explain why and give a, a sense of the big picture, then I could imagine the the um, the team just rebelling at a particular point and saying, "Let's do the other drill. It's more fun." So <clears throat> I think it's important to have a rollout speech first, where you talk through with your students some of the why of narration, why it might be helpful. And we've already mentioned the idea of how children narrate by nature, how it's kind of natural to us as human beings, but there are some other important whys to narration that you want to know and you want to be able to tell to your students in some way, shape, or form. A particular book that I would recommend here is the book Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning. It's by three authors, two um, neuroscientists or cognitive psychologists, and one professional writer or novelist. And so they got together and have popularized in a really great form a lot of the best that we've discovered in terms of learning science today. And one of the first and most important things they talk about is retrieval practice. Their first chapter is called To Learn, Retrieve. And retrieval practice is just like narration. It's, it's what you'd think. It's practicing retrieving from memory content that you had previously been exposed to. There's a lot of incredible research to support this. And that's why I think, you know, the fact that Charlotte Mason was able to hit on narration and its power so early in a way, even though um, as an idea it goes back into the classical tradition way before, but there are a lot of studies that um, have been done that show that this act of retrieving from memory something is when learning occurs. It, it's what creates durable learning. In particular, I would recommend maybe looking up some of those studies in Make It Stick or other books. Um, you know, there's a Learning Scientist podcast that has some great material on retrieval practice. There's also a, recently a book, NeuroTeach, came out that talks about the importance of retrieval practice, or it's sometimes called the testing effect. The fact that when you test something, that's when the memory is formed. So I think having as part of your rollout speech something for the students that gives them a little bit of a vision that what they're doing is going to help them learn. Because students don't naturally think that just recounting something is the learning process. And that's one of the things I think we need to continually remind them of, ourselves of, and get through to them is that it's not like an added extra or something that's really hard and is going nowhere. The act of narration, of telling, is when memory formation occurs. Now, of course, sleeping on it is also important in memory formation, we know. But having that moment when, you know, students have to retrieve from memory what they've just been exposed to is what signals to our neural networks that this is something worth keeping. So that what's going on in our brains is the first little sheath of myelin that makes that memory able to be retrieved so much easier in the future. Students won't naturally know this, so you got to tell them that, and that, that would be a great part of um, getting them to buy into this process.
Uh, Jason, how would you, uh, just uh, thinking about memory and what you're talking about with the science of learning, how would you respond to a potentially a, a concern or an objection that isn't narrating, just having the students parrot or repad and uh, uh, repeat uh, what they've just read in a way that's actually not that cognitively challenging? How would you respond to something like that? I think that's an understandable question. I think if we think if we compare narrating with dealing with discrete discrete analytical questions, sometimes you know if if we have Bloom's taxonomy in our mind and the lowest level being sort of our basic comprehension, and then you go up to further levels of analytical thinking, you know we might tend to think of those all as separate acts or separate things. Like if you, you can either comprehend or focus on students' comprehension or you can um, cultivate higher orders of thinking. But I think our brains are more complicated than that. And I think Charlotte Mason actually was countering in her day this idea which had its form in the faculty theory of the mind that supposed that our, our mind has a whole bunch of different faculties that you can cultivate separately through different skills. And her idea was that no, the brain is more holistic than that. Our minds actually engage in the full force of what they're doing at all time, and it's more interrelated. I think that a lot of brain science research has borne that basic idea out. There are, if you might call them that, different neural networks, but it's really the whole part of the mind. The whole mind is at work all the time. We can't even break it into right brain, left brain anymore, which has been a big popular way of thinking about how the mind works. Actually, in almost any act that you're doing, you're engaging neural networks on both sides of your brain. And when students are learning, what's going on is we're bringing the full force of our attention to bear on something. Uh, you have to focus on something in particular in order to think things out. So I think narration does focus on that basic level of com comprehension. But so many more things are going on in the background. If you're comprehending a text, for instance, you're bringing up all of the different words, all your language structures are being brought up, but then the student's also imagining, uh, say, the story or the scene. They're making connections to other things. They're engaging with how people are relating. And as they do that holistic process more and more, they get better and better at it, and their comprehension and the ideas start to rise to higher orders of thinking. So that it's not like we just get rid of comprehension and the lower levels of Bloom's taxonomy as we move up to the higher. It actually happens the other way around. The mind naturally raises its game to higher and higher levels of engagement with ideas and material. And when students are trained to bring the full force of their attention to bear, on a topic, more and more they develop their thinking and engage with it. And so I think that's important to say. I would also say that as students get older and as you practice this with students from youngest to oldest grades, there are different ways of interacting with material than just a simple narration, right? There are, there are multiple ways of doing narration, but there's also, um, Charlotte Mason says in school education, 
other ways of engaging the mind. Uh, she calls them disciplinary devices, and, and we might call them the, the sort of analytical thinking where you're tabulating knowledge, where you're tracing cause to consequence, and all those different things. You could, you could do so many different things with content. Um, the main point is that the students' minds are active uh, in engaging with content. They are doing the work of learning actively and, and have some real way of interacting with it. Again, as opposed to just that sort of passive interaction that's so common, where the teacher is mostly doing the work of thinking and the students are marginally participating as their interest waxes and wanes throughout the class period, right? So I think that's all too common. The teacher's focus should be on helping the students do the work of thinking and learning. Well, I wanted to let our listeners know that our website is educationalrenaissance.com. And on at the very top of the page, if you wanted to learn more about the practice of narration, there's a link you can click on, Charlotte Mason's Practice of Narration. This is the ebook. This will take you to the ebook that Jason has written. And uh, you can delve even deeper into uh, this content. Also, in the show notes, we'll link to some of the resources that Jason has mentioned, like Make It Stick, lots of content out there on retrieval practice. And it's actually this content on retrieval practice that gives us some insight into what we ought to be doing as teachers in a learning environment where we have active minds, student minds engaged in, the, in narration. So as they're energetically trying to narrate texts and pictures and music and all of these things, it's not as though the teacher's energy goes offline. It's not like we get to sit back and rest while the students are active. It's just that the teacher's activity is different now. We're actually watching, we're listening for certain things. And I was thinking about the concept in retrieval practice of the value of forgetting. Mm -hmm. That when you forget, your mind actually wants to go grab that thing all the more. And so one of the things you're listening for are those passages that got forgotten, the details that got missed. So maybe we can talk through how as a teacher we can uh, optimize that narration for, for the best learning in the classroom. So what do we do when we find that students get inaccurate details in there or they skip over a passage or they've missed a really rich idea that we really wanted them to get out of this passage? How do we go about doing that? Yeah, I can get it started here. Um, and just to back up a minute, you know, I think you really want to set the scene well for your classroom before the narration even begins. So, you know, like Jason said, you've cast a vision for your classroom on this new practice you're going to implement. Well, now it's day one, right? You've entered the classroom, you've got your lesson plan, you're about to uh, roll out this practice of narration and give it a shot for the first time. The first thing you're going to want to do is, before you even read the text, before you ask for a narration, is you're going to want to prime the pump, so to speak. You're going to want to get the students thinking a little bit about a past lesson. You know, what do they remember about what we studied the other day? Get them talking a little bit. Perhaps you talk a little bit. Um, that's fine at this point in the lesson. 
the key is you want to get their thinking rolling. You want to get things um, going in that sense. And you might also put a few vocab words on the board. You want to think through what are going to be some of the key obstructions to a smooth, fluent narration. And often those are terms or phrases that the students are either unfamiliar with, haven't encountered before, or simply don't know the meaning of. Those are the phrases. You don't want to overwhelm the students, but you know, three to five words they'll encounter in the text. Again, depending on the medium they'll be telling back. You'll want to put those on the board, explain those, so that when the students encounter those in the text, those don't function as a roadblock, but actually as a pad for traction. So as they're narrating, they remember that, oh yeah, Mr. Barney defined that word for us, and they continue that process. So that, in Charlotte Mason's language, is considered something like a little talk. Uh, but Patrick, maybe I can turn the question on you. So you've given the little talk, uh, you've asked the students to narrate. Do you want to continue from there? Absolutely. So as I'm working with a class, and uh, some of the classes we work with are as small as six students, I would say. Um, we've worked with classes of up to 16, somewhere in there, even more, 20 when we combine classes. There are different ways in which you have to manage who's talking and who's going to narrate and make sure everybody gets a chance to speak out. And uh, so sometimes there are techniques that you can use. Uh, we use name cards to call on different students at times. Uh, maybe one student does a full narration or I'll stop them in the middle and call on somebody else. So everybody's ready to narrate which increases everybody's energy level, who's going to narrate next, and so everybody's focused because maybe they'll get called on to narrate. But the other thing is, while one student is narrating, I may be asking the rest of the class to be listening for any errors, or I'll be asking them to, to check on somebody else or to fill in details that got missed. And this is where we can utilize that forgetting. So one student to the right is doing a great job narrating, but they've missed some things. And so you call on somebody else. What else is there that we could fill in for this narration? Somebody else provides the missing stuff. Well, the first narrator now has the benefit of their mind being able to grab those things that were forgotten and they become more deeply embedded in their memory, even though they weren't the one that narrated it. So that narration in that group setting is actually to the benefit of all, especially when you've created a culture of narration. All of the minds become alive as they're listening to the one narration. All of them are narrating in their own minds. In practice, everybody's narrating, even if one voice is speaking. I think there's a, a way that the students' minds naturally just jump to that. Mm -hmm. You know, when you hear someone narrating content that you've just been exposed to, you, you become the critic. Mm -hmm. it, it just naturally happens in our minds and in students' minds. And one of the things that's really helpful for continuing to build that culture of accountability in the classroom where, where we all are learning together is to ask for additions and corrections from students so that that process of narrating 
has a feedback loop to it that again ups everyone's game. Uh, so very often in the classroom, you're going to have a few students in whatever subject it may be who are eager to make additions and corrections to another student. And you, you want to set that up well so that you don't have a student that's correcting in a way that is less than polite. Um, but really, when it becomes a normal practice in the classroom, it just sort of fades into the architecture of how class runs. And it becomes this, again, culture of we care about this material. There's sort of that natural peer pressure amongst the students even where, you know, some students are really into it and are very focused on the details of what we're learning and are making sure that the others get it. And uh, I think that's a really powerful thing. Um, so you can have just this basic one student narrating aloud, orally spoken in front of the class, and then the feedback loop of calling for additions or corrections from any other students after. There are some other ways of going about that narration process too. One of them that Charlotte Mason recommends at one point is to do a sort of what I call a string narration. And that's where if you have a longer passage or story this works really well with, you can um, call on one student, then politely ask them to stop and then ask another student to pick up where they left off. And in that way, potentially run through four or five students, having them each narrate in turn part of the story. Again, this works best with longer passages as opposed to shorter passages. In our middle school, sometimes, for instance, we might have a, a great novel being read at home, two chapters, and then students come in and can spend 20 minutes of jumping through different students, telling the content of that narrative one after the other in vivid detail again when students have been trained to this it's really amazing what they can do and so that's the string narration we're starting the string narration real yeah, quick jason because uh, i just remember one of the teachers at clapham uh, saying to us a couple of times that he has to cut students off because you know they'll they'll read the text that i before they'll come in ready to narrate and it will go 20 minutes or longer and he'll at some point be like, okay, we've, we've got to move on to the next lesson today. So, Yeah, it's an incredible thing. One of the great things about that process is that, again, it ensures that every student is following the first student's narration because they never know when, if they might be called on next to jump in and continue telling where that first student left off. Uh, again, all the students have to be thinking and actively following in that sort of environment where that's done regularly. And, um, and then doing that, of course, gives multiple students the opportunity to actively tell. Of course, every student's listening, and that's important, but actively telling is at a higher level of game than just listening to someone else telling. And so getting to involve more students in the process is uh, always better when possible. Another step beyond the string narration is to engage in a group narration or partner narration. And this is where you split the students into groups. Often we have students sitting with a partner at a table, and so that becomes really easy. And then you can call, you can say, after we've read the content or been exposed to it, 
um, the person on the left should begin telling back to the person on the right, and then the person on the right can make additions once that person's done. And that becomes a really great opportunity because now you have 50% of the students in your classroom narrating actively. Um, you have to prepare yourself and your students for this sort of practice because it's a little bit more loud in the classroom. But students, as they do it, can get focused and stay focused. I think also you want to make sure before you move to these varieties of string and partner that you really have students who have gotten used to the basic one student orally narrating. That's kind of the foundation practice of narration. And then partner narration, you know, would be a, a raising the game and relies on students being able to do it the mo more basic way well. Um, also, as, as a teacher, while this partner narration is happening, you want to make sure and circulate amongst your students so that you can listen in and make sure that all the students are focused on narrating um, as well as they can, because it can sometimes slip in the midst of a loud classroom. There's a little bit less pressure on each individual student to tell as well as they can than if they are telling in front of a whole class where everyone's listening to them. Um, and so you want to build that structure in and help in, keep that accountability for the best narration they can do as high as possible. Yeah, I would just uh, just echo just how important it is for that circulation to occur. And it, it kind of moves into the distinction Jason made earlier uh, between teacher as leader versus, he didn't mention at the time, but classroom manager, right? If you are merely managing your classroom, then you haven't yet created that culture where the students are doing the work of learning, where they are self-compelled to tell back in a high-quality manner. Rather, in a classroom-managed classroom, the students are only doing the work that they know they need to to get an acceptable grade or to not get in trouble. But if you, as Jason recommended, cast that vision for narration, inspired them with the idea of all that narration will do for them in their own journeys um, as learners, then they will want to narrate. And yet, we are still fallen human creatures. And that's where the circulation comes in. We still need our leaders to come around us to give us accountability to lend us their emotional presence to ensure that we can do the best work that we're capable of. So we have um, given you a lot of things to think about with regard to narration. Uh, you may be, this may be a new thing for you where you are starting to rethink how you are teaching in the classroom. Uh, you may have already been committed to narration but are honing those skills. So I wanted to reiterate, uh, if you want to take a deeper dive, uh, Jason has written an ebook. You can click through to this on our website, educationalrenaissance.com. I also wanted to mention that if you have questions from the ebook or from our podcast today, feel free to reach out to us. You can send us questions in the comments section on our website. Uh, you can also find us on social media. We've got an educational renaissance group on LinkedIn. That would be a great place where you can interact with us. We'd be happy to 
field any questions you have to the best of our ability. Um, you can also find us on Facebook. We have an educational renaissance group on Facebook, another great place to interact with us, ask questions. We'd love to hear your comments as well. Are you trying to implement narration in the classroom? Um, it's pretty exciting to see the vivacity of students as they take these deep dives into the course content we want them to work through. It's so fun to see narration become part of your culture. Uh, we have uh, teachers at our schools who go out to recess with their students and narration continues outside of the classroom. They play these games where they're Spartans and they go to battle and they set up all of these fun narrations outside. Or we'll have parents come in and say, our child just told us this elaborate story that they learned in school. And so we really are giving students these great tools when we have them narrating. So any final words, guys, about uh, narration? Last thoughts, if you could put a billboard out into traffic about narration, what would you want that to say? Well, that's a, that's a hard question right there. <laughs> you'd have to take what you wanted to say and put it into a very small format as right. opposed to a longer format where you could tell back for hours and hours yeah. about narration. <laughs> I think what I would stress for teachers who are listening and um, who are considering implementing narration is the idea that narration functions as part of a larger lesson structure. And so one thing we haven't talked about yet is, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about the first little talk and what we might call a setup and how you sort of set up for narration. But the, the lesson also potentially goes on after the narration has occurred. There's a time for a second little talk or a discussion or some sort of response to the um, material we've engaged with. I think that's a really important step. Um, narration is that important kind of assimilation of content piece, and then we can go deeper in so many different ways. We like to talk about discussion-based learning, how important it is to ask those rich questions and cultivate those higher orders of thinking, like Bloom's taxonomy, in a way that we talked about earlier. So after the narration is there and we have this level of comprehension really solid, next comes discussion questions, asking these open questions to these students, cultivating deeper understanding and awareness, drawing applications from the text or story to our own lives, even bridging um, this text with other subjects that we've studied throughout the day asking good questions so that students are inquiring and thinking through the material in different sorts of ways. That, that type process of elaboration is really important too. And then there's further responses like writing about the material, you know? It doesn't have to end in just a discussion. You could have students each individually writing a response or beginning an, a short essay or composing their own um, figure or diagram based on 
the material so that again their minds are processing it and taking their knowledge that they've gained to the next level my final word would just be an encouragement if you're a teacher out there and you're interested in implementing this practice would be to try out narration for yourself actually mm -hmm. uh, it's surprisingly challenging so maybe pick a, a a favorite story from the Old Testament that you haven't read in a while or perhaps a Greek myth and and read it aloud to yourself maybe get together with a friend or a, a co-worker read it out loud together and then close the text and try to tell it back from start to finish and include as many details as you can using the author's language try to follow the sequence and uh, you'll find just how challenging and rewarding the practice of narration is. And I think you'll um, then even more want to implement it. Well, we're so thankful to you, our listener, for following along with us. Maybe it's time now to turn the podcast off and try to tell it back as best as you can. <laughs> uh, thank you again for listening to us. We are Educational Renaissance. We are promoting a rebirth of ancient wisdom about education for the modern era. So happy to have Jason Barney, Colby Atchison along with me here in the studio. My name is Patrick Egan. Thank you and have a great day.